Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. It is Thursday, May 18th, 2023. On the verge of a long weekend here in sunny Vancouver, Canada, Mark Daly and Mark Hamilton here to bring you all the latest Formula One news. Hammy, how are you doing? Like I said, long weekend coming up. Sounds like you've got some plans, my friend. Yeah, definitely do. Looking forward to hitting the old I-5, heading south, going to Seattle to watch our first WNBA game. We have an action, I think as you do, an action-packed May-long weekend here in the Pacific Northwest. And temperatures, my friend, not that anybody cares, but temperatures here in the city of Vancouver have been scorching hot for the last couple of weeks. And it's remarkable too, because I just, I have to keep looking at the calendar. I'm like, it's the middle of May. Like this is July, <laughs> August weather. Maybe maybe a long summer, and you know we're gonna have we're gonna touch on some somber topics this week, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But um, obviously, our, our thoughts and prayers go out to everybody in the province of Alberta. If you didn't know, uh, the province of Alberta, home to five million Canadians, is absolutely being ravaged by wildfires right now. I don't know if you noticed today, but you can start to see it in the air here in Vancouver. You can start to see that the sun's starting to get blotted out a little bit, and there's that red yep. haze coming in that you and I have become so familiar with. But I'm doing good. What are you planning for the long weekend? Uh, my son is in a, a sailing this weekend in a regatta, so that means he's going to be having fun and I'm just going to be sitting around trying to <clears> amuse <throat> myself because when it comes to kids' <laughs> sports sometimes, you know, parents are, are just there as well, you know, as soon as they get there, it's kind of like, oh, okay, dad, see you later. And then you just kind of sit around waiting until they come back hours and hours and hours. It's not like going to a soccer game or a baseball game or something. He goes out on the water and disappears. So, you know, it's not the, the most uh, exciting, you know, sport for the parents uh, to to take part in the sailing that is. But I mean, it's fun for him. And I guess that's uh, what it's uh, all about. But Hammy, like you, you mentioned, I mean, we got a, like a bunch of things to, to talk about. Uh, before we do that, I just want to give a shout out to JT the Human, the incredible artist that uh, created that um, wonderful intro music that we have. A shout out to the RaceWeekendMagazine.com. That uh, Chiesto uh, issue has that, uh, that dropped a couple of weeks ago, showing up on people people's doors great to see that um so go check them out uh, the raceweekend.com and it's r-a-c-e uh, sorry pardon me r-a-c-e-w-k-n-d.com use our promo code scuderia pod and save 10 percent at checkout and also go check out RacingExclusives.com for unique one-of-the-kind uh formula one merch that comes with a, a coa certificate of authenticity so check out what tease and the crew has in the in stock at RacingExclusives.com. but you daily. mentioned that uh, we daily yes breaking what, news what? 
Breaking news. Sorry, not breaking news. Not breaking news, okay. funny news. So, funny so news. I, I, do you remember Do you remember the first season of Family Guy? Maybe it was the first episode, and it was the episode where okay. death is stalking Peter Griffin. Like, everywhere he oh, goes, death is yeah, there, yeah, death yeah. is there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of, I kind of have that phobia about Chat GPT coming for my job, and I'm probably the most vulnerable person in my company. Full disclosure: like Chat GPT <laughs> is coming for my job. But earlier today, I thought, you know what? I'm going to log into Chat GPT and ask Chat GPT about our show. You know what? So I went okay. to Chat GPT. I logged in. I said, "Tell me about Scuderia F1 podcast." And I thought, I thought the summary was amazing, and I have to share it with you. So I'm going to read this now. According to ChatGPT, the Scuderia F1 podcast is a popular podcast dedicated mm. to Formula One racing. Okay, pretty accurate so far. It is hosted. I don't know about the popular bit. <laughs> oh, it gets better. It is okay. hosted by famous Italian journalist Mark Daly, who brings his expertise <laughs> and insights to the show. Mamma mia. The, <laughs> the podcast covers a wide range of F1 topics, including race analysis, true, okay. news, true, interviews, and discussions on various aspects of the sport. It continues. The podcast features L episodes that delve into the latest F1 races, providing post-race analysis and insights into the strategies, performance, and key moments of each Grand Prix. The hosts often discuss the drivers, teams, and championship battles, offering their perspectives on the current state of F1. In addition to race reviews, the podcast covers news updates, keeping listeners informed about the latest developments in the world of F1. They discuss driver transfers, team changes, rule updates, and other significant events happening in the sport. The podcast occasionally includes interviews with drivers, team principals, and other notable figures from the world of motorsport. These interviews offer unique insights and perspectives, providing listeners with a deeper understanding of F1. Overall, the Scuderia F1 podcast aims to provide F1 fans with engaging, informative, and entertaining content. So aside from you being a famous Italian journalist, to me it seems pretty bang on. What did you think of that summary from ChatGPT? Well, I'm I'm going to be honest with you, Hammy. I'm ending the show early. Apparently, I need to phone my mother and find out I think there's a secret aspect, a, a dirty little secret, some skeleton in the closet that's just been revealed by artificial intelligence. So, you know, I, I didn't realize that was Italian. 23 me, my friend. I'm going <laughs> to send you a 23 me kit. Actually, how are they not a sponsor of the show? Like, I feel like that would be a natural fit for the show. Athletic Greens, 23 and Me. You know, honestly, I, I did do one of those DNA tests uh, before and like it revealed nothing new. It was just like British Isles, Northwestern Europe, you know, and, and a bit of Scandinavian blood kind of like in there. I'm just like, it was the biggest waste of money because it reaffirmed what uh, what I already knew about my, my, my family heritage and that I'm also related to, to nobody, even the slightly best famous, but I guess you know, according to Chat Chat, chat GPT, pardon me, I am a, a famous Italian motorsports journalist. So I guess maybe I where did, I broke where did the, the mold. Italian baby, come from? It's it's so succinct and so accurate in so many ways. But except for that, get? the Italian <laughs> journalists. Uh, so like you take out the word Italian and you replace it with Canadian. It's yeah. spot on, except for the fact that it completely neglects your co-host, which I'm fine with, I guess. But, well, at uh, least they didn't call you like a ham sandwich or a ham dog or something. You know, like some yeah. of the different nicknames we've come yeah. up for you over the years. But I feel a little bit seen after that. But, you know, apart from that thing, I mean, it's surprisingly eerily accurate, isn't it? Yeah. All right. Let's get to the infographs that we usually start the show with. 
Right. Okay. So uh, this year, the average gap uh, to pole after the first five races of 2023. So the average gap uh, for Red Bull is 0.04 seconds. Second is Ferrari, 0.3 seconds. Aston Martin, 0.58 seconds. Fourth, Mercedes, 0.68 seconds. And then you get a, quite a bit of a drop off when you get outside those top four teams, which I guess isn't really all that uh, surprising. And then you have uh, Alpine, which is the first of the teams in the, the bottom half of this table, which uh, comprises of six of the 10 teams. And these are all over the second mark. So Alpine is on average uh, 1.1 seconds behind McLaren, 1.3 seconds, uh, Haas, 1.35, Williams, 1.4, uh, Alfa Romeo, 1.5, and then Alfa Tauri, 1.52 seconds coming in uh, dead last. And that is according to Formula, uh, sorry, at Formula underscore stat analysis so that's uh, that's an interesting one and now fernando alonso the points after the first five races of the season since 2010 so going all the way back 13 years ago after five races and then racing for ferrari fernando had 67 points in 2011 51 61 72 in 2013 in 2014, his last season with Ferrari had 49 points after five races. Uh, then his first season with the uh, McLaren in 2015 was a goose egg, zero. 2016 was eight points. 2017 was zero points. 2018, his last season for uh, McLaren, very respectable after five races. Uh, he had 32 points in 21 and 22 with Alpine. Boy, seven points combined after the first five races in his two years at Alpine, five and 21, two and 22. And this year with Aston Martin, after five races, Fernando sitting on 75 points. So I would say a career high, but uh, definitely a high point uh, in his career since 2010. So that is a, a very, very cool graphic uh, to see what Fernando is doing. But it's kind of funny, like the, the the picture of Fernando in the background there. I don't know why, but I get these Sebastian Vettel vibes. You know, just, I don't know, there, there's something, it, it looks more like Seb rather than Fernando, even though it's obviously Fernando. So maybe a bit of uh, shape-shifting going on there or something a little bit weird. Anyways, Mark, uh, you did touch on it, uh, obviously, on the the, the the beginning of the show, Alberta being ravaged by wildfires here in Western Canada, but it's not the only place where we've seen some very bad weather. In Italy, over the past uh, several days, we've seen very, very bad weather. And, you know, I've, I've talked about it many times on the show, but I'm also a big fan of cycling. So we're halfway through the Giro d'Italia, which is a grand tour, their version of the Tour de France. The weather's been atrocious there, too. They've cut some stages short because of weather, and it's been bad on the roads more days than not. We've seen some horrible crashes, including uh, a couple of days ago, a uh, Giro winner from a couple of years ago, Tail Gegenhart, breaking a hip after a horrible accident. But, you know, that's. You know, that's bad enough it is, but we've seen horrible flooding in uh, Romania where the uh, where Imola is uh, is based. So Formula One making the call yesterday on Wednesday to cancel this weekend's race. And, well, it, it sounds like it's not going to come back on the schedule this year because it's, uh, you know, it's jam packed from now until basically uh, December. But this is this was obviously the right call that uh, this was not going to be 
in any shape, way, or form something that could happen. If even if they could, it wouldn't be appropriate considering there are larger and bigger concerns. And you know, I, I'm just glad that they they did the right thing and they did it at the proper time. And the support that I've seen, especially, I mean, if you go through social media, through Instagram and Twitter, from all the drivers, I mean, you know, they're they're showing a lot of love to the effective uh, region, and uh, you know, obviously, it's uh, it's really touched a lot of people. So, Hammy, well, well you know. <laughs> we kind of knew that we were going to lose China this year because of uh, you know just the the ongoing situation there with COVID, which I'm not really kind of sure where it kind of sits right now. But it just kind of seemed that that we were going to lose China. That uh, that just seemed like an sorry inevitable, and then we were going to just get on with it. I mean, you've been talking about it quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. It's like, well, buckle up, uh, everyone, because we're hitting the first triple header of the season coming up next weekend at Imola. And uh, now, you know, because of all the bad weather in Emilia Romagna, it's 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 not going to happen. But uh, you know, like I say, canceled for the right reasons, and you know. It is what it is. The Formula One statement reads, following discussions between F1, the president of the FIA, the competent authorities, including the relevant ministers, the president of the Automobile Club of Italy, the president of Romagna region, the mayor of the city and the promoter, the decision has been taken not to proceed with the Grand Prix weekend in Imola. The decision has been taken because it is not possible to safely hold the event for our fans, the teams, and our personnel, and it is the right and responsible thing to do given the situation faced by the towns and cities in the region. It would not be right to put further pressure on the local authorities and emergency services at this difficult time. And quite honestly, I think that statement summarizes my my feelings exactly, that to have even remotely considered or waited any longer to issue that statement would have been a reflection of uh, a lack of respect for the people that call this region of Northern Italy, the four provinces that have been most affected. It would have been a total sign of of disrespect. And, you know, like they said in this statement, the reality is every available resource in this region, be it paramedics, fire, police, security, they all need to be focused on managing and triaging the situation at hand and and you know what accommodating tens of thousands of people that would descend on the region for a formula one race isn't appropriate either and you you know you made called out a couple of seconds ago that um, almost all of the drivers jumped on social media to share their thoughts i'll just read a few of these at uh, at hand lewis hamilton writes hoping everyone in romania is able to stay safe and look out for each other right now thoughts are with those affected by this tragedy and amazing emergency services working on the ground uh says sergio perez all my thoughts in prayers with the people in the Italian region. We're not racing there this weekend, but hopefully we can get back there soon. Please stay safe. Oscar Piastri writes, my thoughts are with all those affected by the floods in the region. Sorry to all the fans that won't be able to com- uh, that we won't be able to compete. I look forward to my first race at Emila in the future. Uh, Pierre Gasly writes, I'm very sad and sorry to see the current situation. My thoughts are with the families, fans affected. I love racing at Emila. I hope we can be back soon. Stay safe, people. Uh, and then finally, from Yuki Sonoma, who, by the way, was pictured in the streets of the city where the uh, uh, Toro Rosso, Al Toro Rosso, Alpha Tauri factory is based with brooms cleaning up the mess. Uh, Yuki Sonoda writes, finally, after a horrible night, the town is heavily impacted, dust, mud, and the smell of gasoline everywhere. Currently, people are struggling to find food and especially places to stay. After many have been evacuated from their homes, please, anything you can do to help is appreciated no matter how big or 
or small the donation. So great sentiment from F1. Very, very proud of the FIA and Liberty for pulling the plug on this and pulling the plug so quickly. Um, and love to see the drivers with those really positive sentiments. And obviously, when we do get back to Imola, and for the reason you just described, it's not going to be this year. There's just no way to find find room in the calendar without causing sheer havoc from a logistics perspective. Um, when we do get back, uh, obviously, uh, people will embrace the event, embrace the region, and hopefully we can do something special to uh, memorialize that this happened. But again, our thoughts and prayers, um, as they do to the people of Alberta, go out to the people of the northern provinces of Italy, and hopefully emergency services and local authorities can help guide guide people through this terrible time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the emergency services uh, there have to be uh, focused on, on on the people that live there, and and at best, it would be highly inappropriate. But like you say, more to the point, it would just be downright uh, disrespectful uh, to do it. But it, it's interesting. I just wonder in general what the like. I I know that was uh, you know pretty pretty bad bad weather to get to that level but you know the the last couple of years when we've had a race in Imola they've been more often than not wet than dry races so I just wonder in general you know and I'll have to do a little bit of look into this is this kind of a wet time of year in that uh, in, in that part of Italy you know per, 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 perhaps it is but uh, the, yeah yeah sorry the last thing I'll here. add yeah the last thing I'll add here too is uh, Again, it seems like F1 races get canceled all the time, but I think if you put the COVID years in isolation, this is the first time in kind of a non-pandemic year, the first time since 2011 that we've had a race canceled. So typically the- I don't remember that because you threw that into the show notes that uh, they canceled Bahrain in 2011. And 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 I'm struggling to remember that. Like, you know, I go through and I, I, I Google it and sure enough, uh, you know, I found the corroborating stories. I'm just like, I, I don't remember remember that happening at the time it's the, it, it, it's the weird Seb Vettel it's years weird. were a bit of a blur for all of us a bit of a blur for it, all if I, it's if true I, yeah. it's true i just remember and, the first time you and i sat down to do a podcast together you'd made this comment about how you looked at your phone one day it's like oh seb won a title oh that's three in a row when did that happen it, it just it was a blur it was very much a blur for me and it's funny because, uh, you know, I'm not a Seb Vettel hater by any means. I mean, you know, I, I really, you know, I, I like Seb, you know, I really uh, respect him a lot. And and it, it's funny because like when you go through, like, I, I'm not a big Facebook user anymore, but uh, I, I remember that, Mark, sitting down that uh, like we, we were about to jump on the on the show or I pulled up uh, Facebook for some reason during the podcast. And there's like one of these Facebook memories. Yes, it's just, like, that's it. Just, they just watched uh, Seb win his fourth title now off to we we're going to a concert or something like that. I'm like, I remember going to that concert like it was yesterday. And I remember, you know, everything that 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 happened in the evening. And I'm just like, I don't remember that race. <laughs> you know, I don't remember making that Facebook post. But like you say, for, for me too, like that whole like championship run of Sebastian at Red Bull is just a bit of, um, I don't know, it's a bit of a blank. I have to go back. And it's funny because like sort of 2012, 2013, well, I guess maybe 2013 becomes a little bit more clear but then you know as soon as we switch to the 2014 era the hybrid era it's just like i, I can almost recall almost any race at any time by memory since then i don't know I, why it's so, so weird and i know we're getting derailed which is what we're famous yeah. for but i feel Not the same according way to chat gpt that seemingly everything up until the brawn year is like crystal clear in my memory and 10 yeah 
11, 12, 13 is just a blur yeah. for whatever reason. And then it crystallizes yeah. again in 2014. But moving back to this topic at hand, the good news is, unlike when the Vancouver Formula E event was canceled a couple of years ago and no refunds were issued, um, and unlike in Belgium two years ago when, of course, a race was classified after two laps behind the safety car, Imola has been canceled, as we described, and Imola F1 ticket holders will, it has been announced, will receive full refunds from the race organizers. And it looks as though um, it looks as though formula one themselves, Liberty won't, won't seek payment from the race organizer. So I, I, I was a little bit worried that the race organizer would still have to cough up to Liberty, which certainly doesn't seem appropriate given the fact that they can't host a race and they can't recover any of the costs through ticketing and concession and merchandising sales. So ultimately all the tickets will be refunded. So from an F1 business perspective, I think ultimately it's just a little less money in the constructor's prize pot at the rest end of the year but it's nice that they were so clear and so quick to announce this as well yeah but but you have to think though hammy when it comes to stuff like that that there must be some sort of language in the in in the contract between you know all all the different parties like this would have to be obviously classified as an act of nature this isn't one or the other i completely agree getting cold feet or just somebody being you know awkward about saying no we we just don't want to do it i mean this is a a situation beyond anybody's um you know control but before we go into the next one i just uh, you know i I mentioned um a couple of minutes ago that uh, you know how you know, I've been enjoying watching the Giro and, and and the cycling. A couple of years ago, I believe it was in 2020, they actually held the the World Road Cycling Championships at Imola, and um, you know, in in and around Emilia Romagna, and it was really quite cool because they actually did use part of the track for the road race, um, you know, for the for the World Championship. So that was uh, that that was very very cool. And for me, it was like the ultimate crossover between my two favorite sports. So you know, <laughs> hopefully we can get uh, you know, hopefully they can finish the Giro because you know obviously we're not uh, gonna have the uh, Imola run this uh, weekend anyways let's jump into some of the rest of the news as soon as I can find where my outline went so the world's highest paid athletes age 29 and under for 2023 25, this is an article five and under sorry 25 and under. Sorry, I was looking at uh, the for 2023. So not, uh, yeah, so 25 and under. So we'll go through the list here. So at number one is uh, Kylian Mbappe. Number two is Kyler Murray. Number Okay, so Mbappe is uh, on field $100 million. Off the field, $20 million. So 24, sorry, he's 24. And just to French be clear as well, when they say off player. field, we're talking about yeah. sponsorship, right? So yeah, on field is what like they're that. being paid yep. by their club. Yeah, and off field is endorsements. And this is important because I think that I have an interesting observation to share in a second. Yeah, so coming in at number two is uh, Arizona Cardinals quarterback Kyler Murray on field. So his uh, salary from the Cardinals sixty seven million off field, uh, pretty wimpy three and a half million. But you know, I'll take that in sponsorship if Kyler doesn't want it. He's twenty five, uh, playing uh, obviously in the NFL. Coming in at number three is. One and only Max Verstappen. So salary sixty million, off field endorsements, sponsorships, etc. Only four million. I'm kind of surprised, you Daily, know, for, for a dual world champion. And that's exactly what I want to talk about. So sixty million dollars. He's earned every penny. He's the best driver on the planet. He's risking life and limb every race weekend. I totally get it. I love it. But I think the fact that he's generating so little incremental 
income off the track is is really interesting. And it's either because one, he's not super attractive to potential sponsors like Nike or Reebok or Gatorade, or I guess it would never be Gatorade because he drives for Red Bull. But I find it really fascinating <laughs> that the the most notable motorsports personality in the world is only earning $4 million a year off the field. Part of that though, as a twist could also be that, hey, maybe he feels that he's so well so well compensated for driving a Formula One car that he doesn't want the distraction of sponsorship appearances and those kind of obligations. But I did find it really interesting that he's only earning $4 million because I don't have it in front of me, but I promise you, Lewis Hamilton, for example, earns many, many times that in, in kind of off-the-field income. Yeah, it's interesting, right? I mean, we'll, we'll just find out. There's, there's only a couple more, so... The last two that make this uh, list is uh, Erling Hollands, who plays for uh, Manchester City FC in the English uh, Premier League. Uh, Forty million in uh, in salary off uh, field uh, sponsorships. Twelve million. He's only twenty two. He's a, a Norwegian uh, soccer player. And then Luka uh, Doncic. I hope I can uh, pronounce that uh, perfect, properly. Perfect. So. You know, I'm just, uh, I just nailed my Slovenian names today. I'm very proud of myself. Anyways, Luca's earning 37.2 million. Off field is 10 million, 24 years old, and uh, not doing too uh, poorly at all, even though, um, you know, well, he, he plays for who? The Mavericks, right? He does. Yeah. 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 Superstar. Yeah, cool. Did, didn't make the yeah. playoffs this year, and things kind of fell, fell apart when they traded for Kyrie Irving, but he's still a. Uh, He's still something of a transcendent <laughs> talent, and I'm confident that Mark Cuban, the Dallas Mavericks, will be able to turn it around. I, question for you, because you've been sure. around the sports world and you've covered sports, and I was thinking about this when I was walking into Walmart earlier. I don't know why I shared that, but I was thinking about it when I was going grocery shopping. <laughs> I know there's 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 often a little bit, even amongst sports fans, there's oftentimes a little bit of apprehension or anxiety about the amount of money that these that these individuals earn and I'll share my opinion first that you know Jalen Rose always says something to the effect that these individuals are worth every penny that they have the ability and the leverage to negotiate and you know at the end of the day if it's not Luka Doncic taking this money if it's not Max Verstappen taking those paychecks you know that money is going to stay with the team owners it's going to stay with the organization it's going to go to shareholders ultimately they are the product like max first like i get in formula one the car is really classy it's special and well-engineered, et cetera, et cetera. But more now than ever, we're, we're tuning in and we're talking about Max Verstappen and Sergio Perez, and we're talking about Lewis Hamilton. And when we tune in to watch the NBA, we're watching LeBron more than we are the Lakers, and we're watching Luka more than we are the Mavericks. So my opinion has always been, every penny that you can put in the hands of the athletes is where that money should go. Like every cent they can earn, but I know not everybody feels that way. So when you see this list, what is your response, especially the number one slot making a hundred million dollars on field is, is he being overpaid relative to what he contributes to the organization or, or is he possibly underpaid or maybe appropriately compensated? Yeah, you know, I, I guess, uh, you know, that that might be a little bit subjective when it comes to who's looking at that list um, and, and and who the athlete in question is. But I mean, just to, in general, I, I agree with you. I mean, we pay to go watch the athletes do what they do. Because most of us, basically the rest of like 99.9995% of the global population 
can't do what these people do. It doesn't matter if it's soccer, if it's football, basketball, Formula One. These are the best of the best of the best, right? And, you know, we... You know, we love to watch what they do, and we, we get out of our seats, we scream, and we cheer them, and 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 that's what it's all about. And I know that the owners are there to to make money. That uh, that that a lot of the time that these are like vanity projects and just a, a way for them to kind of milk a cash cow, so to speak. So. I, I would much rather see the money go to the people that you know that are getting people excited like the athletes rather than the caricatured like monopoly man that has bags of money or like your evil Mr. Burns type not you know like that I should generalize or stereotype the uh, professional sports teams owners but you know what I mean I mean it should go to the people that get us excited because you know I I mean let's face it too not everybody when it comes to professional sports is tom brady i mean what he did and the level that tom brady played at in the nfl in such a physically grueling and punishing sport as uh, as professional football is to play at the level that he did for so long is extremely rare i mean and how long has lebron been in the nba now i mean since 2003 20 years exactly 20 years you know lebron's been around for ages and to play what the, the the level that lebron has played at for 20 years is is crazy you know so uh, but but that they're almost like the outliers i mean the the average person in any professional sport does not have a shelf life of a lebron james or a tom brady or a lewis hamilton or a fernando alonso you you can draw any number of you know examples from across the spectrum of sports and there's plenty of examples but there's even more examples of the people that come in especially the ones that that might be just kind of on the fringe as good enough to play in a professional level but maybe not quite you know has those game changing abilities or they stick for a couple of seasons and they retire or in some cases you know people that are extremely talented but have their 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 careers cut short by injury or other circumstances and and, and things like that so like i say i mean they're the ones we get excited for let them have the money and uh but it's funny too like i i don't know i I I think Mbappe I think is worth that uh, number one slot there. Yeah, I'm a little bit kind of questioning whether Kyler Murray should kind of clock in at number <laughs> two there. You know, but you know maybe that's uh, maybe that's just me. I don't know. I don't remember seeing the the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, you know, like walking around flexing on the number of uh, Vince Lombardi trophies that they have <laughs> down there in in Phoenix. But and, whatever. Sometimes you look, know, wait. and and just. I was just going like, to finish that thought, well, you know, just to, in regards to Kyler. No disrespect to, to to him, but sometimes you get paid not what you're worth, but what you're what you can negotiate. So if he was able to flex on that and negotiate that amount of money, you know, more power to him. And for the record, I think Kyler is a pretty decent uh, quarterback, but I just don't know if he's worth the, the 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 price tag. And Cardinals kind of have some issues, anyways, as it is. Anyways, I jumped in really there, Hammy. Go ahead, and then we should take a break here in a in a couple minutes as well, sir. Yeah, yeah, of course. I think my last thought on this is I, I'm not arguing that owners don't have the right, especially in team sports. I'm not arguing that owners don't have the right to to make money. I mean, ultimately, more often than not, they're basically given the keys to a stadium by the local government, which is a kind of separate conversation. Mm-hmm. But even if all, even if <laughs> the owners only broke even. 
even if the owners only broke even every single year, to them, it's it's a long-term play and it's the increased valuation of these teams. Like, take a look at Dak, Daniel Snyder. So he's he's just selling the Washington Commanders right now. He bought them in 1999 for $800 million US. He just sold them for $6 billion. He earned $5.2 billion on that investment in 25 years. And the other one, and this is, and this is actually, I'm going to tie it into F1 here. Um, as the average major league soccer team in 2005 was worth $10 million. They just announced today a new expansion team in San Diego, and the expansion price was $500 million for an MLS wow. team. So if you if you bought wow. into the MLS in the mid-2000s at $10 million, that investment is worth, what, 50, 100 times more than it was less than 20 years ago. It's remarkable. So in the sports game, like you said, it's a vanity project. You buy it. There aren't many of them. You sit on it and the valuation increases exponentially over over time. So again, you know what? Everyone can everyone can profit so long as people are paying for personal seat licenses and these high ticket prices and streaming prices and stuff like that. So that's all I got. Yeah, that, that is an interesting conversation to have. Maybe we'll 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 jump into it in one of these uh, off weekends that we have because you know, like I definitely have a lot of thoughts on that. But uh, you know, it, it's kind of like one of these off-topic nights that, that I would that we love have. I to get a, into that with you. Yeah. I would love to yeah. get into that yeah. with you. Yeah, we'll we'll do that. We'll we will definitely do, you know dedicate a show to that. You know, maybe in the off season or maybe one of these off race weekends. But uh, first of all, let's uh, take a quick break. We'll come back. We still got uh, a bunch of things that we want to talk about, so we'll do that in uh, just a moment. So don't go away. We will be right back. Passion, drive, and patience—the formula for winning championships—is also what keeps your ride or die alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Mark Daly and Mark Hamilton here. The the famous Italian motorsport ja- journalist, Mark Daly. I actually get business cards made up uh, to that. And I'd be as, you know, maybe with an asterisk uh, beside that saying, uh, you know, famous Italian motorsport asterisk, you know, according to chat. GPT. Anyways, okay. So um, obviously, we we talked to the first segment about the cancellation of uh, the the Grand Prix at Imola this weekend because of the the, the flooding and the, uh, the the horrible weather that uh, that they've seen in northern Italy over the last uh, several days. And one thing that we were going to see this weekend was um, even though it wasn't going to be a sprint uh, race weekend, but there was going to be a little bit of a different approach to the standard qualifying uh, procedure on Saturday. So they were going to be, well, let's put it, put it up here. So the teams were, were going to have to use different compounds tires. So Q1, the teams would have to uh, use the hard tire, Q2, the medium, and Q3, 
the soft. So this uh, the, the reasoning behind this was allow uh, to Pirelli to reduce the amount of tire sets brought to the Grand Prix, which is not so insignificant uh, because two sets of tires per car are, are, no, uh, are, are not required to be uh, ferried to the race. So, I mean, by the time you kind of do the math, you know, that's two sets, uh, you know, per car per race. Then you know you multiply that over the uh, you know the the entire grid. That's you know quite a bit of savings of uh, transport, and uh, and uh, and um, you know the logistic cost there. Mark, what, what did you think about that? Uh, you know, we've talked about different things in you know different format qualifying or qualifying formats, but this is kind of an interesting one that they've um, that they 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 put in place. I mean, for you know basically cost and logistic uh, you know savings you know but they dressed it up in kind of an interesting way but i mean just even in general i think the concept is kind of interesting because on a couple of levels right because number one it gives the the, the team some some pretty good data with the when the cars are really being pushed to their limits and if you've got one of the faster cars that can make it to q3 you should get like uh, some good data on all three different uh, tire compounds but um you know the thing is too is that uh, we, we always see that well no we don't always see uh, the, the the lap times uh, speed up but we should definitely see some faster lap times considering there's usually what about it usually a second between or you know a half to one second uh, between the, the 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 different tire compounds so we should see quite you know racy times in q3 compared to q1 although i guess uh, track temperature and and things like that will, will come into play once this is uh, eventually introduced but uh, your thoughts my friend yeah I'm, I'm not totally convinced it's the right time to introduce this midstream partway through a season but conceptually i i really like this for the reasons that you just explained that logistically and from an environmental sustainability perspective it's possibly the right thing to do says pirelli motorsport director mario isola the first round of the 2023 season in Europe will feature two important in innovations in terms of tires, both aimed at improving the environmental sustainability of our sport. The first center is around qualifying. At IMLA, we will be testing a new regulation that requires teams to use a different type of compound for each of the three sessions, with the hards fitted for Q1, the mediums for Q2, and the softs for Q3. This means reduction from 13 to 11 of the sets of dry tires that each driver has available for the entire event, therefore decreasing the environmental impact generated by the production and transport of the tires. Now, according to the planetf1.com, and I didn't hear this podcast myself, but speaking on the F1 Nation podcast, Damon Hill was incredibly enthusiastic about these changes. He says, I'm wetting my lips. I think it's a great idea because it means that the race is not going to be one stop probably. And in Q1, you're probably going to have people doing more than one lap. They might even just fill them up and say, off you go and try to get the heat in the tires. So probably some unintended outcomes as, as a byproduct of introducing this. Again, you're going to have fewer sets of tires. You're going to be forced to run three different compounds during qualifying. Maybe that influences or impacts race strategy. Maybe we end up in a world where we have multiple stops, which is always exciting because at this point, strategy is one of the things that's kind of keeping keeping the championship alive in, in, in so many ways with Red Bull being so dominant. But uh, very, very cool. And I'm fully, fully, fully in line and supportive of these of these changes. 
Yeah, yeah, me too. Sorry, Hammy, I was just uh, pulling up uh, a couple of things here. You know, uh, maybe we can do some uh, emails a little bit uh, later in the show. But yeah, I, I think it's uh, a good idea to try different things. And, you know, it's, it's it's funny. Every time I hear like introducing a new qualifying format to a Formula One race weekend, I just think of that disastrous kind of like rolling cutoff time that they, 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 they played around with in what was that 2015 or 2016, where, you know, it just uh, that, 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 that rolling cutoff time didn't even work and most of the drivers just uh, stayed in the pits and i think they used it for what two or three races tops and then it's like now we're going back to the old (laughs) old format and you know regardless if you think it's got some issues or not i think it still is the best format that we have and any kind of like little minor tweaks that uh, they they can make to it uh, the 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 better so kind of like seeing that one okay let's uh, move on to the next one so mark i'm gonna throw this one because i think this is a more your uh, wheelhouse so uh, Zach Brown, the CEO of uh, McLaren, calls for cost cap changes to remove what he calls sustainability barriers. Let's uh, w- what's going on there? Yeah, and I'll start with a quote from Zach Brown, and I'm reading from SkySports.com here. But says Zach Brown, "We strongly believe in the cost cap and wouldn't want to see anything that undermines its integrity. But current regulations have created some unintended barriers when it comes to investing in sustainability. It's been fantastic to see so much." support from F1 and other teams on the issue, and we're delighted that the FIA has established a working group to explore next steps, but to unlock our sport's potential to drive the development of more sustainable technologies that can spark positive change on a global scale, we need to genuine step change. That requires a level playing field so teams can work towards achieving the same targets and no longer need to choose between investing in their car performance and investing in sustainability. And that is kind of the key takeaway from this conversation, which is Zach Brown is arguing, look, the sport is invested in sustainability. The FIA is invested in sustainability and the teams are aligned that we need to get to a more sustainable future. But what he's arguing here is that because of the cost cap, which again is integral to the sport, integral to competitive parity, and also integral to ensuring the lining of the pockets of the team owners. Um, What he's basically arguing here is unfortunately because of the cost cap, where we need to make significant investments in sustainable infrastructure to support our teams for the long term, we're being forced to make decisions between sustainable infrastructure investments and investing in the current car. And because of that, when teams are forced with making that decision, more often than not, they're going to be to kind of lean into investing in the car and investing in its performance and its drive change and its gearbox and its suspension and its aero, when really they should be investing in infrastructure that's going to enable them to unlock a much, 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 much more powerful sustainability um, in terms of their future. So it's it's interesting. And I think the argument here is, and he continues, um, our sport needs a clear regulatory framework with financial, technical, and sporting regulations that better enable us all to innovate, invest in sustainability. We need to find better ways to share expertise and insights across our industry. Only true collaboration will help us drive meaningful change. And if we want to achieve a step change with the new set of 2026 regulations, then these decisions need to be made now. And I think the message really is, 
if we're going to require and expect teams to invest in sustainability, and that's technology that will ultimately flow into the car and also sustainable infrastructure that supports the travel and their factory and their personnel and everything that they do, you need to start making exceptions for that outside of the cost cap. Because if teams are given and forced to make that decision between sustainability and investing in the performance of their current car, they're going to invest in the performance of the current car because that's what everyone's sees in the championship standings, in the constructors championship, in the drivers championship. And it's also what their sponsors are expecting. If you, if you are, if you're McLaren, you, it's really difficult to go to Coca-Cola and say, look, you know what? We're not going to spend $20 million this year developing a new gearbox and rear suspension because we want to invest in, um, lower, lower carbon travel for the team that's heading to the Grand Prix to support the team. Like that's a tough conversation to have. So Really interesting message, again, reinforcing the importance of the cost cap, but hopefully hopefully, an opportunity to provide some relief to the teams so they can, can kind of in parallel invest in their car by utilizing the cap, but make some exceptions so they can invest in some of these sustainability measures that are so so sorely needed. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I like that uh, take that you have there, Mark. So the the email I was trying to pull up uh, is kind of runs in parallel to this. So I'm going to read it out here, and this is uh, an email from uh, Ryan Vermeulen, Ryan in Saskatoon, in uh, in Saskatchewan, in uh, Canada. So, anyways, uh, thanks, Ryan, for the email. So I'm just going to read it out. You guys touched on how North American sports fans are used to parody in sports. This is so true. The big four leagues in North America do an excellent job at this. This had me thinking on why salary caps work in those leagues, but not in F1. I think it really comes down to a level playing field. All the teams of the big four leagues have state-of-the-art facilities. They have the best coaches, trainers, doctors, physios, etc. Now ca- compare this to F1. Many teams do not have state-of-the-art facilities which state of the or, or, or with state-of-the-art wind tunnels. They don't have the best engineers and staffing required to produce a top-tier car. On top of that, many of them do not even build their own car engines and therefore cannot build a car around an engine they have produced. All the budget cap uh, does is prevent every team from spending any amount of money they want to during the season. This doesn't mean the money will uh, being spent will produce the same uh, results. A budget cap will never level out the playing field. To truly create an F1 league with real competitive balance, each team needs the, the same opportunities and abilities to build a competitive car. Every team needs a fa- facility that can rival Red Bull or Mercedes. I believe a budget cap should exist. However, it's not the answer to a truly competitive league. Formula One should be focusing on how they can get each team into a position to be competitive. Bringing in more teams on the grid is not the answer either. Formula One doesn't need another bottom-feeding team. Rather than bringing in more teams, Formula One should be bringing in manufacturers to partner with current teams to build better facilities and engines. Formula One needs 10 teams, all with great infrastructure, so they can develop a car around their own engines. Anyways, uh, Ryan uh, finishes off. Uh, shout out to my wife, the Albon Knights, currently in 16th place in your fantasy league. Like an idiot, I forgot to switch my DRS boost back to max last race and missed out on 36 points. Would have put me in T12 or tied for 12. And uh, his team is City of Saints. Daily, can, so can I respond goes. to that email? Yeah. You can. Yeah. I, I read that exactly because I know this is exactly the kind of thing you like to talk about. Yeah, so I appreciate that. Let's so, hear your thoughts. So for starters, Ryan, that's probably one of the very best listener emails we've we've ever had. And 
I completely agree with every point that you're making. And, and I love the comparison. And I think that comparison probably spills over into kind of premier football leagues in Europe as well, where you would expect top tier football teams to have comparable training facilities and travel and private jets and all these, all those kind of amenities that that you would expect of a top flight billion dollar sports team. And, and I like where he's going here too, which is the cost cap is good, but it's one measure that's required amongst a, a slew of measures. And this is one of the reasons why I'm not super panicked about the cost cap. We're in year two, right? We're in year two of the cost cap at this point. Year three mm-hmm. of the cost cap, 21, 22, three, 23. Yeah. And again, I think there was this expectation from some quarters that we would see immediate parity. And that was never going to happen because some of these teams were farther down the development path of their arrow and the cars and the drivetrains and the gearbox and there's others when the cost cap was implemented. So there was a certain amount of spillover. But at the same time, certain teams were just farther ahead of other teams in terms of the infrastructure, which is exactly what Ryan's saying, right? Like if you go to Endstone today, that's a decrepit old facility that lacks a wind tunnel or any modern amenities. And if you go to Silverstone, where Aston Martin is based, they are now retiring a 30-year-old factory and opening up a brand new factory and are about to cut the ribbon on a brand new wind tunnel. And my point being that if you go team to team to team, even though they're all working under a cost cap, they have different tools to work with, which is really unfortunate. The one thing that does make F1 really special, and, and I'm glad that Ryan didn't mention this because um, I, I would have been, I would have shed a tear. But I mean, ultimately, if you want true parity in F1, you just scrap the concept of the engineering challenge and you just hire a single contractor to provide the same cars to every team and they just slap a different livery on them, right? Like we could do that and have instant parity. But engineering, the engineering challenge is a big part of, of Formula One. But I think that's a really great, succinct, detailed, articulate email from Ryan. And I just want to thank him for uh, for sharing his thoughts because I think it added some real value to our conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I just want to mention too, I found a bunch of emails in the spam folder. So Gmail is doing a horrible job. Like in the inbox is just going garbage and all the the, the good emails like Ryan's ended up in spam. <clears throat> and it was only founded there because I was wondering, why are we not getting any emails? We're just getting crap all the time. So I apologize for that. And Mark, that's just another reminder that we need to get our butts in gear and get everything you know on the back end sorted out so we can actually have a proper functioning email, which we've paid for, but we've never actually seen set up but anyway said so cheers for the the email uh ryan that was uh that, that that was awesome so uh let's talk about the next one so aston martin responds to the honda rumors that perhaps they're going to partner with them for 2026 or sometime uh, beyond that saying that mercedes uh, parts do not limit our performance mark what's going on with aston martin if i think this you, is a nice tie-in because you just perfect mentioned perfect them a few moments ago if you yeah, if you've yeah. listened to any of our recent podcasts we've been referring to some of the great work that's been happening over at the race.com and the race.com have been reporting that Honda who's currently supplying power units to Red Bull and their sister team Alpha Tauri that Honda who doesn't have a partner for 2026 was close to announcing some sort of arrangement with Aston Martin to be an exclusive supplier to them or that they would be supplying Aston Martin exclusively and of course this is super unique because currently Mercedes supplies Aston Martin and Mercedes owns a chunk of the Aston Martin road car division and Aston and Mercedes also supplies the drivetrains and gearboxes for the Aston Martin road car. So it's kind of interesting. Um, according to Dan Fallows, though, that there is no current panic 
or fear within the organization that sticking with Mercedes drivetrains, Mercedes gearboxes, and Mercedes suspension components would necessarily be a drag on their development and their aspirations of winning a world title, says Dan Fellows. So far, I haven't found any reason to wish for anything other than what we get from them, he says referring to Mercedes, that would be the case if we really depended on them for areas that would limit our performance. But honestly, I don't think that anything we get from Mercedes will limit our performance. Is any of that preventing us from achieving the goals that we want to achieve? No, absolutely not. So I think we're really happy with our relationship at the moment. I think that's where we are at. And of course, he's responding to the rumors that Honda would become their supplier because as we've talked about on the show uh, quite a few times, there's this perception, and I think there's still some truth to it, that you as a Formula One team are often on the back foot if you're being supplied with somebody else's power unit. You have less control over the design of your car because you have to design suspension and aero that accommodates the cooling requirements of the power unit and the size and the placement and the weight of the gearbox and those kind of things. But basically what Dan's saying here is like, look, you know what? We don't feel that we are at a disadvantage um, utilizing a Mercedes gearbox and a Mercedes power unit that we don't feel that this is hampering our aspirations for a world title. Now, he could also just be throwing cold water on the rumors as negotiations are ongoing. But as you and I have talked about before, the benefit of being an exclusively provided team is that Honda and Aston Martin would work hand in hand to develop the car and the power unit in sync. And that's not what happens today with Aston Martin. They basically have to wait until they uncrate the Mercedes power unit and gearbox to be able to figure out how they're going to design the rest of the car around it. And when you're a, effectively a works team, because that's what that would be, you do the two of them hand in hand. And you know what the perception is, and historically the truth is, those are the teams that are more successful. But interesting that Dan felt the need to react to the rumors. Uh, I still, I'm still not convinced it's going to happen, but I also at this point wouldn't be, wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, you know the one uh, exception of a, a works team that wasn't really a works team, but probably was a works team, was the early 2000s McLaren Mercedes, right? That, that was, I, I mean, am convinced that was a works team. Yeah. Absolutely convinced that was a works yeah, team. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it has to be, right? I mean, like, I mean, technically it wasn't, but I mean, it had like Mercedes branding all over the car. I mean, there there was so much like Mercedes input to, to it. I mean, and and what they achieved together was, was absolutely a, a amazing. So, I mean, they were a customer team, but not really, but they weren't really a works team, but they were. I mean, it was a weird situation, but like I say, I mean, it was uh, it was an incredible Can I just add in, something in to that? Because history. this is such yeah, an exciting topic. If, if you're newer to F1 and, and you weren't really familiar with that era, there was a period leading into the 2010s when Mercedes was involved with F1, but they were supplying power units to McLaren exclusively. And they basically had a 50-50 cost arrangement, which was, you know, ultimately Mercedes is going to get the branding on the car. They're going to get all the exposure, um, but they're going to pay 50% of the bills. But unfortunately they had zero input who, who was driving the car. And then when Spygate happened and the FIA levied a hundred million dollar fine on McLaren, because of course they were effectively caught cheating. They were stealing 
design and intellectual property from from Ferrari, um, they were levied with a $100 million fine. Mercedes had to pick up half the tab. So Mercedes, who was the power unit supplier that had absolutely no role in the Spygate scandal, picked up 50% of the tab. And they were furious because they're paying half the bills, they paid half the fine, and they had no input into the people that were driving the cars. And I think even in 2007, 2008, I think the writing was on the wall for that relationship. And I think I think Mercedes was looking for an out. And of course, in 2009, an opportunity arose, which was Honda exited the sport because of the global financial crisis. Uh, Ross Braun took over the Honda Works team. They pulled that Honda power unit out of the car and they got a real like emergency supply deal from Mercedes. So Mercedes supplied the power units. They went on to win the championship in one of the most Cinderella stories in the history of the sport. And Mercedes is like, this is our perfect out for Mercedes. We're just going to have our own works team. So they continued to supply Mercedes right through 2014 before they switched to Honda. But at that point, that kind of pseudo works arrangement was over and they had their own works team. And I'm convinced that that probably would never have happened if not for their horrible relationship with, with McLaren. Yeah, I mean, it kind of worked out for McLaren, or sorry, Mercedes in the Big long time. run. Uh, long Big run. time. Yeah, M- McLaren, not so much. I, I mean, I, you know, I, I, you know, from my point of view, I don't think it's too much of an argument to say that uh, McLaren is still suffering a bit of a hangover from that whole Spygate, you know, scandal, like all these years later, what are we coming up on like 15 years or whatever it is? I mean, it's been a long, long, long time. Um, anyways, Mark, sticking with the, with Aston Martin. So their uh, share value in the road car division, that is jumped nearly 25% on Thursday of this week after the, uh, the car maker announced a 234 million pound investment by China's Geely. So this is doubling uh, their stake in uh, to make, uh, or sorry, to make them Geely. That is the third largest uh, shareholder holder in uh, Aston Martin. This is a, uh, quite the story do you have anything to add to that you're kind of like the business nope. guy that's going to be i think it's an interesting AI, story and i think it's probably some investment that the aston martin road car division needs i think there's one interesting quote here and this is from routers.com our decision to increase our existing shareholder in aston martin reflects our confidence in the company's growth prospects its technologies and its management team said geely Sh- chairman eric lee the investment will give geely a 17 percent stake in the company up from 7.6 and entitles it to one board seat behind number two shareholder saudi arabia's public investment fund the pif geely if you don't know and i didn't until I read this, um, Geely owns multiple brands, including British sports car maker Lotus. They own Volvo road cars oh. and via a joint uh, venture with Volvo, they also own Polestar. So uh, they've got quite right, a wide right. range of investments in the automotive world. And they got a pretty big uh, portfolio by the sound of it then. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. So, uh, Mark, uh, one more story here before we go into the second break. So, uh, Mercedes uh, has confirmed an upgrade uh, plan to the W13. Uh, Is it 13 or the 14 now this year? I've forgotten. It's the 14, right? Uh, anyways, they've confirmed their upgrade plan to the car after the uh, the cancellation of the Emla Grand Prix this weekend. Mark, what can you tell us about this one? Any details on what's coming in the, the upgrade oh, package nothing juicy. to the Mercedes? 
we're probably not going to go. Oh. We're not going to know until the Thursday. Well, maybe the Wednesday at Monaco, but we're not going to know until midweek before before Monaco at this point. So the good news is they're not going to wait till Spain to roll out the upgrades. We're going to see them in the Principality. We just don't really know what they are, other than the fact that we're probably going to see some significant upgrades to the Arrow um, and possibly an entirely new floor. So a new approach to creating downforce wow. on the underside of the car. But I think what everybody is excited and waiting to see is what does the new rear suspension, because it's rumored they're going to get a new rear suspension, but even more importantly than that, what are the side pods going to look like? Because of course, they are rocking the famous, uh, I don't know if that's the right word, but the the well-documented zero pods, and infamous. it's understood that as the infamous, perfect, uh, it's well it's well understood that they're probably going to eliminate the zero pod design. In doing so, though, they have to rework so much of the aerodynamic surfaces on this car because all of these different pieces have to fit together like a puzzle. So we don't know what those upgrades are, but fortunately, we don't have to wait too long to, to find out what they're going to be. Yeah. Well, we won't have that much uh, longer. We're going to to Monaco now. What in just uh, under a week and a half? So we just have uh, we we just have an extra weekend's wait, which uh, you know isn't a bad thing, especially when it's a long weekend here. Okay, let's take a, another break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Fernando Alonso, and we'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We will be right back. All right, welcome back. So the next uh, story we have here comes uh, courtesy of uh, motorsport.com. It was uh, written by Mark Hughes, and it is uh, called uh, Alonso's F1 Success at U.S. Funding Rumors. Why did Alpine boss attack the team? So the the byline to this says, Laurent Rossi has not hidden his uh, disappointment in Alpine's start to the 2023 season. Mark Hughes has a possible reason why so mark what was mark geez, there's too many marks here all what did mr <laughs> hughes let, let, let's just eliminate the name mark for for the for, for the moment okay mr. so hughes. in the article mr hughes what is mr hughes's uh, reason why uh, laurent rossi went on a bit of a tirade a bit of a rant this time last week regarding his team i feel a little bit ashamed that I didn't come up with this myself because it's kind of two pieces here. One, which is Laurent Rossi was being interviewed by Canal Plus, Canal Plus, the, the French media network. And he went on a very, very long targeted tirade uh, against the Formula One team and a number of individuals that work for said Formula One team. And on the other hand, there's these distinct rumors that an American company has made a significant investment, not in in Alpine, but in the Alpine Formula One team. And it's rumored that that investment is equivalent to 25% of the team and was priced at $200 million, putting the valuation of the team at $800 million. So there's this rumor that's kind of been kind of frolicking around the paddock for a couple of races now that this is either in, in process or in progress. It's been done. They're waiting to dot the T's and cross the I's, I guess that's wrong, dot the I's, cross the T's, that it's close. And it's now understood, or at least as Mark Hughes puts it, that perhaps some of Laurent Rossi's frustration here is that they're trying to find a significant investor for this team for the reason that Ryan just explained a couple of minutes ago, because they want a cash infusion of the F1 team so they can invest in things like a wind tunnel, et cetera, et cetera. And his frustration is at the exact time he needs this 
this team to be showing progress and advancement in the constructor standing and from the driver's championship perspective and just generally on the track, they're going backwards. And he speculates that, and again, he acknowledges 100% that this is just speculation, but he's speculating that maybe Laurent Rossi's tirade was frustration at the fact that the team seemingly going backward. And of course, most of that frustration was directed at Otmar Snafnauer. And perhaps all of this, and this is more me reading into this now, but perhaps all of this was more orchestrated um, as an optics play for the team or the organization that's looking to invest in, in the Alpine Formula One team. So if you're trying to shine up this team and get somebody to invest, Ideally, you want them to be performing well on the track because that's more attractive. And I think if you're an outside investment firm or a company that's looking to take a stake and you look at their dilapidated facilities and you look at the lack of chemistry between their drivers and you look at their lack of performance on the track and the fact that they're going backwards and the fact that they lost Oscar Piastri last year, the fact that they lost Fernando Alonso last year, and the fact that Fernando jumps to uh, Aston Martin and then Aston Martin leapfrogs Alpine in the championship, all of these things kind of accumulated. But I thought that was a really interesting take because again, that rumor kind of popped up about two weeks ago and there's been nothing since, but Mark Hughes, like I said, suggesting that maybe some of the frustration is that they're trying to angle for this investor and the team's not performing well enough to appear that attractive or appears attractive, but the valuation is lower because they're underperforming. Yeah, I mean, it'd be easier to attract investors to the team, like you say, when they're doing well, because then it's like, well, you know, maybe if we put a little bit more money into them, invest a little bit of money into this team, this team is going to win. Whereas they're struggling right now. It's like, a, you know, potential investors like, oof, this is going to take a lot of time and a lot of money exactly. to get this team pointed. Exactly, exactly. It's Mark. just like, like, and and they're just looking at their ROI, like, like how long is it going to take before we get some positive uh, press on uh, on this team? So it makes uh, perfect uh, sense. So uh, kind of going full circle, sort of, but not really. Uh, the next story we want to talk about comes from uh, RacingNews365.com. It's uh, Luke Murphy's article entitled How Age-Defying Fernando Alonso is Shining Again in Formula One. So he starts off saying, equipped with an Apton Mar- Aston Martin car capable of challenging for podiums, a rejuvenated Fernando Alonso has become one of the stars of the 2023 season. Racing News 365 spoke to the two-time world champion about his racing form at 41 years of age. So, Mark, what do you think in this interview uh, done uh, between uh, Luke and Fernando? What were some of the key standouts, talking points, or or revelations from from the two time world champion Fernando Alonso? I think the the biggest one is an acknowledgement that his time away from F one was was good for him psychologically, emotionally, and and just in terms of his approach to the sport. And I'll, I'll, I'll kind of read some quotes here from Fernando Alonso. He says, I think when you are in for, oh, sorry, he's, I'll read again. The timeout helped me, maybe not so much in my driving style, but I think on the mentality and in the approach and on the motivation. I think when you are in a Formula One car for 18 years, it's not that you lose motivation. I always have motivation, but I was tired of traveling. I was tired of the routine and repeating the same things. The two years out of the sport were very, refreshing. I was just charging my batteries and maybe the driving is similar, but mentally I'm much fresher. I'm happy to work and I'm happy to come to the circuit early, happy to keep chatting with the engineers, PR staff, event sponsors, all of these things. I have full batteries now. Well, in 2018, I was empty. So it did help. And then if I compare my driving or try comparing myself to 2005 and 2006, I'm much better now. 100 
percent. So I think one of the big takeaways wow. from this article <laughs> is that he feels that from a, a racecraft perspective, he's better now than even in his championship years, but also acknowledges that, hey, in 2018, I was in a terrible place. My battery's depleted. And you know, you and I have talked about this before, 2015, 2016, 2017, you could hear the anger, you could hear the frustration. It was toxic. It was toxic within Woking. It was toxic within the McLaren Technology Center, in the paddock, everywhere. You just didn't want to touch that team. And every time you heard Fernando on the radio when he was in a race, it was something negative about the car, something negative about the power unit. The relationship between Honda and McLaren was terrible. They needed to blow all that up. And of course, they were able to do that. Fernando Alonso exits, leaves the sports, takes a stab at Indy and a couple of other things, comes back with Enstone, which is actually where I thought he was going to finish his career and I could have been more wrong, but acknowledges I'm better now psychologically and in terms of my craft than I was in 2005, 2006, a remarkable statement. And you know what? You read that chart at the beginning of the show and I, I kind of quickly repeat that. So um, if you don't know, or you're newer to the sport, he, after he left, I guess he was a Renault, he went to McLaren, went back to Renault, and then he went to Ferrari and had a real chase at a couple of championships. 2010, 67 points after five races, then 51, 61, 72, 49. He's, he's having a better start this year than in any year at Ferrari, which is remarkable because he had some pretty great cars in those Ferrari years, finished just shy of a championship twice to Sebastian Vettel. Yeah, I mean it, it, it's amazing, like you say. I mean that 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 revelation that he feels like he's better now than when he was uh, as a double world champion almost twenty years ago is absolutely incredible. But I mean, yeah, I mean those 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 McLaren years, like you say, you could hear the anger in his voice. You could just tell he wasn't in a good place. But it was um, it was really quite different because when you compare that to just even a couple of weeks ago in, in, in Miami, when you saw him sort of, you know, out there talking to Danica, like on, in pit lane uh, after like qualifying in the race, et cetera, he just seems like he's having fun. Like he's enjoying himself. It's like, he's got like this big ear to ear smile and, you know, you could just tell like it's, it, it's not forced. It's not unnatural. It just like, it seems that he's a person completely happy with where he is at the moment and he's happy with the and car. He's and likeable. You know, like, for, 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 he's likable. At least for me, for the first time in his career, he's so likable. And I know you and I yeah. are cheering for him every single race because it's one, it's the best story of the championship. But he's suddenly so charismatic and so marketable. And he's leaning into social media trends like the whole Taylor Swift thing. And I'll, I'll quickly kind of read a couple more quotes here because I thought these were really good. But um, he says, speaking to the 2023 AMR23 Aston Martin Formula one car he says i think our car is overperforming compared with what we were expecting maybe ferrari and mercedes are underperforming a little bit in the first races but they're a very strong team so they'll get eventually better and better we saw how much mercedes improved during last season at the moment it's happy days for us with the podiums but we cannot take it for granted and assume that it's going to be like this all season things can change quickly the top teams are bringing upgrades to the cars and things like that so we have to also keep up the development race because i think whilst we are racing every sunday on track we are racing in the factories as well trying to bring new parts and then finally on race number 30 or win number 33 he says i hope so but there are no guarantees if you see over the last few years ghastly won in monza akon won in hungary so an opportunity to win a race is always there and the closer you are to the top the better your chance is so yes why not we will have an opportunity but at the moment we need some help from the others and it's going to be because of a mistake for somebody else not an opportunity to win because we are better 
Yeah, interesting. I think that's a, a good segue into the final story of the uh, the night, and this is uh, another story from uh, RacingNews365.com, and this is a Ewan Gales piece entitled "F1 Cannot Intervene in Red Bull Dominance," and this is a you know quote, a little short story about a quote um, you know made by F1 CEO Stefano Domenicali speaking at an event that was uh, recently hosted by the Financial Times, in which uh, Domenicali said, "Quote: This year we need to." say the truth. Red Bull did a better job than the others. It's a fact. But I would be imprudent to say that the championship is finished. We cannot intervene in the performance of the teams. I'm sure what we did in terms of the financial regulations will help minimize the gap on the technical side. So, you know... I, I think that there's a lot to take away in that uh, that little clip there. And yeah, I, I mean, to me, if they were to intervene in the performance, you know, like uh, on Red Bull and their performance advantage is it kind of goes against the DNA of Formula One. I mean, I mean, as long as they're doing everything above board, they haven't breached the cost cap or they're blatantly cheating. Like, like, why would you? I mean, why would you punish them for success? And moreover, why would you punish Red Bull for success now, whereas Mercedes basically ran the table for an entire decade? And I don't remember as many people or any people for that matter saying, oh, you have to pull these guys, uh, the, the, these people back in because they're just ru- running away with it and, uh, and and ruining the sport. But I guess maybe that comes down to the fact that um, that Mercedes is a little bit and they're, they're, they're the people there are more likable to a certain degree than uh, the, 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 than Red Bull. I know Max is obviously not a very charismatic, most of the times, kind of person. And uh, I, I love, wasn't it Toto Wolff that said on Drive to Survive that uh, Christian Horner's like a little Jack Russell ter- Terrier that just kind of nips at you the whole time. So, I mean, you know, just uh, the, the, their personalities, you know, aren't as maybe as pleasing to to, to more people than, than, than others. So maybe that's part of it. But, but you know, to, to punish them or anyone just because they, they got things right compared to, to everyone else, just to me, that kind of goes against the entire, you know, the, the entire DNA of Formula One. If you're allowing, you know, teams to come in and give them the rule book and say, sure, you can design anything you want, but here are the parameters that, that you have to, to, to fit your design within, you know, you know, go and do it. And if you can take those rules and you build a car, you know, that that's an amazing feat to begin with. But if you could build a car that's good, that's even better. But if you can build a car that's better than all the, the good and bad cars combined, like Red Bull has had, like had, it's like, why punish them for succeeding? You know, it's just, um, I, I find a bit of an odd conversation and an odd, you know, comment uh, that I hear from people quite a bit of time uh, this so, year. I, I agree with you. I think the the counterpoint to that is Formula One history is peppered with examples where they do exactly this, where they rein in a team or they rein in a team with technical directives and mid-season changes to the technical regulations to, to bring teams back t- closer to the pack. Or if there's a dispute from certain teams about an advantage and other teams earned by a new innovation, that gets that gets kind of hashed out 
in in updated regulations. Like this is something we've seen, and we saw it a couple of years ago when Mercedes introduced that incredibly innovative steering technology that allowed them to adjust the camber oh, of the, the wheels, dual axis yeah, steering, and, and that was, was vanquished after yeah. a single season. And then, of course, going into 2021, and again, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to sound like a Mercedes fanboy here, but in 2021, there was a not insignificant change to the floor regulations, which certainly benefited Red Bull at the expense of Mercedes and made that championship much much closer. So I, I, I'm happy that they're, they're leaning into the cost cap and their trust in the cost cap and their trust in the current technical regulations and that they're not going to start, I don't know, pulling out technical directives every month in an effort to bring the championship closer together. I'm, I'm happy to see that. Um, I, I just... I want to live in a world where we can trust the cost cap and we can trust the technical regulations and that we can trust that in a year, two years, three years, the field's going to be much tighter together for all the reasons that we just talked about. And like Ryan said at the beginning, even with the cost cap, it's not an even playing field. Certain teams have infrastructure and resources that other teams could only dream of. And furthermore, some teams aren't even spending to the cost cap, hashtag Williams Formula One. So I, I think with time and with some additional investment and when you level you level the playing field in terms of the infrastructure that's available to the teams we'll get there um, but at the same time i i don't think i don't think it's appropriate i don't know if that's the proper word i don't agree with hampering red bull with technical directives because you want to artificially tighten the championship red bull is aside from the cost cap breach in 21 Red Bull is playing by the rules. They've developed the best car. It's phenomenal. I don't, this would be, dude, this would be, think about that run that the Golden State Warriors had for a couple of years. They wore, won four championships in eight years. They ran off a title in 15, 17, 18. They won again in 2022. This is like saying, hey, Golden State, you're scoring too frequently from the three-point range. When you're on offense, we're going to move we're going to change the goalpost. We're going to move that three-point line back two feet. In fact, with Clay Thompson and Steph Curry, I don't think it would have made a difference. But that's kind of, to me, that's kind of the <laughs> feel that you, you shouldn't be changing the rules midstream because one team is is more effective at developing a car than other teams. But I also get it from a business perspective. And if you and I are sitting here at this time next year and the championship's just as terrible as it is this year, then we're not in a good place. And if we're sitting here in 2025 and we're in the same place, like, whether it's the right thing to do or not, whether it's the right thing to do from a sporting integrity perspective or not, you at that point have to do something because you are damaging your business. And we've seen it this year, TV ratings are down. I have it from pretty good authority from people across the media industry that clicks are down, podcast consumption is down. We've seen it for sure after the first couple of races and maybe people are just tuning us out. But again, what we're seeing this year <laughs> isn't good for the sport. So, you know, Stefano Domenicali can take this position now. Uh, but I think if we're in the same position next year and the year after, for business reasons, his he might be forced to make a move. So I, I'm just uh, going to, you know, it's taken me a while to kind of get uh, everything sort of sorted out in my head here. So we, we keep uh, talking about uh, parity. So when it comes to or get to the point where there is parity, are, are we we're, we're trying to get like a create a situation where there's equity for all the teams that they're all sort of starting from the same common place or they end up at the same common like ending 
And then from there we have parody is, am, am I articulating that uh, correctly? I'm not really sure, but that's kind of like what uh, immediately comes to, to mind. But I guess what that's what the, what the cost cap is all about and whether, you know, it, it it's working or not. Um, yeah, I think that's a, a valid conversation, but like you say, it's, um, you know, we're in year three of this. Is it too soon to have that conversation? I don't know. I kind of feel that, uh, you know, maybe this is a good time, like, you know, you know, two years behind us and going into the third year, you would think at some point you're going to see some, you know, so, some more parity on the grid. And I think by and large, we're seeing that, but it's getting completely lost due to the fact that Red Bull is just you know, designed and built the most incredible car. It's got an incredible power unit and they've got uh, an incredible two-time world champion driving it. And then another driver who's no pushover themselves in Sergio Perez driving the second car and between, you know, the, the, the car and the two drivers, they're just pulling home, like, you know, bringing home so many points and the, you know, the, the parody that exists with the other nine teams is getting overlooked because, Red Bull's just that much better the, than everyone the else. The worst case scenario is Red Bull. And again, if you're a Red Bull fan, it's not the worst case scenario. But the worst case for the sport is that Red Bull demolishes the field this year, 24 and 25. Because in 26, we have a major regulation reset again. Um, and I think there's probably going to be some teams come 24, 25 that completely check out on the current technical regulations and go all in on 26. Oh, probably. But uh, a yeah. worst case yeah. scenario, uh, if you're if you're looking optimistically, if we see a really, I would say, uncompetitive championship next year and in 25, we can at least look forward to 26 because we get the new power units and there'll be some not insignificant chassis and arrow changes for that year as well. To go along with it. Awesome. Well, Mark, I don't know. Do we have uh, anything else uh, to add this evening? I think we've uh, pretty much uh, gone uh, through it all. So, you know, before we go, I just want to thank uh, one and all for for checking in and joining us uh, again this week. And and thank you all uh, that uh, have left a rating review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere else. Uh, we really appreciate that. And on behalf of myself, Mr. Uh, Mark Hamilton, thanks for, for, for listening. If you want to get in touch, send us an email at scooterf1pod at gmail.com or jump on your Twitter app. Slide into our DMs and you can find us, or not into our our DMs, you can just add us and send us a wave, or you can slide into our DMs and say hello, and you can find us on Twitter at ScooterF1Pod. And that's it. That's a wrap. Enjoy this unexpected uh, long, long weekend with uh, no Formula One race, and we'll be back. We'll probably be back on Sunday night with something, even if it's uh, just uh, we sit down and kind of ramble on about nothing on Sunday night, which is kind of what we do anyways uh anyhow we'll be back uh, back then of course uh, the regular weekly news show this time next week so thank you all for joining us have a great weekend and we'll talk to you again soon bye for now <laughs>